Hi, thanks for joining us again. We're taking our Bibles and we're going to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 1. And as we've been taking our time to go through the the book of Numbers, we've done the last two uh, sessions, we've done an overview of the book. We've really just taken this bird's eye view of it. And maybe maybe you're different than I am, but over this last, the last few months with COVID and everything that's been happening, uh, I've taken some free time to, to do some binge watching. And maybe you don't binge watch, maybe you don't suffer from that vice, maybe you're better than I, but there are moments where I just sit down and I binge watch. And one of the shows that I've enjoyed binge watching is a, a show called uh, The Imagineering Story. And it's, uh, it's the story about, uh, in the life of Walt Disney, this, um, Walt Disney World and all of their corporations, how they go about engineering, designing all their different parks, their rides, all, all the different aspects of that, that um, culture, that uh, theme park. And as you're watching this story, you start learning that these Imagineers, they're engineers, but they're very creative. They, they learn all these different dynamics, and you learn more about the man Walt Disney and all these, all these different dynamics of the corporation. But there's a, uh, there was a part of one of the episodes that really was surprising to me. They talked about the levels of detail. They said that Disney himself had four levels of detail that he expected all of his people when they were designing and thinking about to, to really pay attention to. He said, I want you to picture the first level where you're just walking up to, to Disney World and you see this castle off in the distance and, and you see it all laid out and you see how it's, it's colors in a distance, but you get this initial picture, but you don't have a very intimate view of it. And then as you walk down the street and you get closer to the castle, you start to see how it's designed, its structure. You start to see more of the intimate details, how the colors go from one color to another. And as you continue on your journey forward, you get into the spot where you're right at the castle and you can see the the painting, you can see the texture on the bricks. You're able to see the, the frescoes and the paintings and the, the, the stained glass, and you see all the little dynamics of it. And then the last level he talks about is when you actually reach down to a door and you feel the metal. You feel the, the hammering on the metal, how it's been shaped, and you feel the weight of the door as you enter in. And he talks about that he wants all of his people to think through all those levels when they're, when they're going through in order to create an attraction. As we look at the book of Numbers, we've done some of that. We've taken this overview approach. We've looked at the whole book as a whole. We've done the overview, and we've learned as we went through that God protected his people, or God prepared his people. The people, they didn't trust God. As we get to the story of Numbers 13 and 14 at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran, though God prepared his people, they did not trust him. But yet God preserved his people and he persevered with them through the end of the book in the plains of Moab and then eventually preparing to enter into the promised land with Joshua. So we've taken that overview approach. We've seen that, but now we want to take some time to go to those next levels, to get into the nuances, to start, start taking it and, and feeling it in our life and applying it directly to where we're at in our, in our life. And so as we take that approach, we're going to start diving into the book of Numbers chapters 1 and 2. And as you're looking at chapters 1 and 2, maybe you're like some of the individuals. I've gotten a couple of letters or talked with some people this week. One individual said, when I heard that you were going to do the book of Numbers, all I thought, it just this godly senior saint said to me in a, in a letter, I was thinking, ugh, 
lists and tribes and numbers. And you, you feel that way. Or like one of our college students told me, they called it a skip section. So what do you mean by a skip section? They're like, you know, one where you sort of just sort of read through it, but you skip over a lot of the words and you just try and get the, the general detail. Maybe that's how you're feeling. You're looking and saying, this is like fast forward, like hitting the old fast forward button on a tape or on a VCR. And you want to you get through a section. Or uh, when I was talking to that college student, they said it's sort of like a syllabus. When you, when you look at a syllabus, the teacher hands it to you. It's got all the information you need, but it's sort of mundane and boring. You sort of look at it, you shove it in your backpack, and you hope you don't ever have to pull it out again. But the only time you really pull it out is when you need it for some reason. Or when I, when I was talking with my kids about this, this idea with the book of Numbers, they said, oh, it's like when we're watching stuff on Netflix. And they have this new little thing called Skip Intro. So when you're watching a, a series, you don't have to watch that introduction anymore. You just sort of are able to skip over it and go forward, and you don't have to worry about it. Well, if you do that to the book of Numbers, and you take Numbers chapter 1 and 2, and you just skip over it and read through it, you miss some really good truths, some really good dynamics that I think are important for us to understand. So let's, let's dive in a little bit more. As we get to Numbers chapter 1 and verse number 1, we're going to see that God is going to speak to Moses. He's going to do it at Mount Sinai. It's going to give the dating of when it's going to happen. And by the time you get to, to verse 3, he's going to say, hey, I want you to take a census. And I want you to take a census of the army, of the, the, those who are able to fight militarily. This is not a, just a population census and seeing how many people we have coming out of Egypt. It is a military census that God wants them to do to number the people so that they're beginning to muster, to rally the troops, to say, we are going forward. We might as individuals look and say, you know what, after we, we read this and we're like a snore, we're like, eh. But to the Jews at this point, to the Israelites, this is excitement because now they know they're going to start moving toward that promised land. They're getting pumped. They're getting excited for that. So who did this military census include? As you read through chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, you're going to see that it included men. They wanted, God said, find the men who are over the age of 20 and who are able to fight. There are those who would not be able to fight, who would be too old, who may uh, have a, a feebleness or a, a, a deformity that would not allow them to be able to fight. And so God looks and says, you get the, get the numbers. And so the, the men are going to do this. But really, when you think about it, it's a daunting task. God is going to say, verse 3, he says to Moses and Aaron, I want you to do this census. Now you might be asking, and I was, I was sort of wondering the same thing. Moses is the leader. Like Joshua is going to be the military leader after Moses. They're going to be the ones who are leading the people. Why is Aaron involved in this? But we have to remember and take a step back to understand the, the culture and understand how they viewed battles. It was not just a, a physical battle. This was considered a holy war. This was a spiritual battle that was taking place. In fact, they would often view this as our God versus your God. And so uh, they, they understood that. In fact, you remember when you get to the end of the book of Numbers, you get to like Numbers 31 and following, you're going to have a situation where the children of Israel are moving toward Moab. Balak is very concerned about this, so he hires a diviner. He d- hires somebody who's going to be able to curse the nation of Israel because he understood or felt that this was a spiritual battle. So he hires Balaam. But Balaam, after trying and trying and trying, one of the amazing statements of Balaam is, how can I do this? God is with them. And he uses a form of that idea of Emmanuel, that that God is present 
with this group. So they understood this as a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. It was, it was that dynamic. In fact, you go on further, you, you learn that they were fighting under God's direction. When God would say, go forward, when God would give the battle, when they would do it in their own power, remember AI, when you get to the book of Joshua, AI, they're not doing it in their power. They're not following after God's direction. They're doing their own thing, resting in their own might and their own power and strength. And they go into this little town and they get defeated. They are doing it under God's direction. So if they're doing it under God's direction, then you want the high priest, you want the priest present. They're there to encourage the morale of the men. The men are there. They're they're nervous. I mean, even though we know God is going to fight for us, there's still the nerves. There's still the concern. I'm going in to potentially die for this cause that I'm fighting for. And so the, the, to know that the ark is there, to know that the priest is there, and the priest is saying, God is with us, God is telling us to do this, there is a morale boost that goes on. We see that throughout history of every nations, when you start reading through, that they felt they were doing battle for their God. And it boosted the morale of the, the men. They would also have to be there because they would need to, at times, the, the leaders would have to inquire for, for strategy. Happens in the book of Judges where they go to the high priest and they ask, and the high priest is going to discern the Lord's will on do we go into battle, do we not, do we, do we go in these directions? And so having the priest present really helped. So why was Aaron around? Because God desired that God, he was going to be part of this military census, but he was also a vital part to the military strategy and the holy war and the spiritual battle of the children of Israel. And there are even times that the numbers, at the end of Numbers 31, when the Midianites are attacking, Eliezer is actually going to go into battle. He's actually going to take some of the sacred items from the tabernacle and use some of those instruments even to fight off people who were coming against them. And so, so there are times that the priests would even have to get into the battle, though that was not their intended goal or their first, their first job was to protect the tabernacle and to serve the Lord and serve the people. So Moses and Aaron are told, hey, you got to take the census. And as you go through chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, you get this whole new list of names by tribe, and you get a leader from each one. What was happening was Moses and Aaron were not going to be able to do this alone. That's 2 million people. It's going to take a long time. This census takes place in 20 days. Everything is going to take place within a 20-day period. When you go from chapter 1, 1 to chapter 10, verse 1, you're going to see it's, it's that time period. And so... They use a beautiful strategy, a beautiful uh, business plan of delegation and trusting in leaders. And they find the leaders, the people take these, these individuals who are like chieftains or they're rulers or princes, or they've been people of leaders of thousands, the Bible says in, in the verse, I think verse five or so, talks about who they are. And you see that that happens where they are now going to Moses and Aaron are going to say, this is what we want you to go back to your tribe, have them count. They're going to tell you, you're going to come back and tell us, and we're going to have this census taken care of. And so Moses and Aaron do that in the next uh, 11 verses with those, those leaders, and the census is going to take place. And here's the result. Then you get into all these numbers, and this is where we get the idea of the book of numbers, because now you're going to have the numbering of the census, of the, of the individuals. And you can go through, and for those of you who love the numbers, I put them up there. I may not stay on the slide long enough for you to get it, but you can easily read through the chapter, and you're going to see all the numbers that are, that are laid out there. The total number, by the time you get to chapter 40, or verse 46, you're going to see the number 603,550 eligible fighting men who are over the age of 20, 
and who were able to fight. There may be some who are under. There may be some who are too old or older and not able to fight. And so the numbers that are given are all laid out there. And you're going to see there are some tribes that are bigger, some that are smaller. Some really interesting dynamics when you start looking through it. You see Judah being the largest tribe and Judah is the leader and becomes the leader, not just because of the size, but you look back through the story of Joseph and moving forward, Judah becomes the leader of the brothers in the, in the, the tribes. You have Reuben, who's the firstborn, uh, a larger tribe. Dan is a really large tribe as well. Uh, I think one of the really neat ones is when you look at the numbers of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim, the younger brother, who was, if you remember, in right around Genesis 50, Jacob is going to bless Joseph's sons in place of Joseph. And he blesses the younger one to be greater than the older one. And Joseph wasn't pleased with that. But Jacob does bless Ephraim over Manasseh and says that they're going to be greater than. By the time you're getting out of Egypt and coming out, Ephraim is already in size and number passing his brother's tribe, Manasseh. And so it's just, again, a fulfillment of the, the words of God and the prophecies of God as they lay out in the word of God. So you have this huge, massive amount of people that are coming out of, it's resting at Sinai and getting ready to move forward. Estimates say somewhere, anywhere conservatively between 2 and 2.5 million people in this group that have come out. And even as we'll, we'll see further in the book of Numbers, there are even some who came out who were uh, not even Jewish, but they came out as strangers. They were other individuals who came out as well. So there's, there's a mixture of people, but predominantly the biggest group here, obviously, is the Israelites and their tribes. Now, skeptics start to say, as they look at this, they start to say, well, can, can there really be that many people? And they raise arguments like, well, think about the time it would have crossed, taken to cross the Red Sea. Or how are they going to have all the food and the water that are needed for all of these people? How are we going to move that many people? How are we going to camp that many people? What are we going to do with their waste, with their garbage? How, how are we going to deal with all of that? And if you're like me, you're looking and saying, well, God has given them provisions for this, and God has provided this, and, and God provided the time to allow them to cross the Red Sea. And, but if you take the miracles out of God, out of the Bible, which many scholars, liberal scholars who don't hold all to the word of God do, you, you come to this point where you're like, there's no way there could be that many people wandering around a wilderness if you take God out of the equation and his miraculous abilities. But we're not going to do that. We understand that God does break in and supernaturally provides for his people. One of the other things that comes up, and I, this to me was completely mind-blowing. This put into perspective something that I had to, I had to take my Sunday school thought of the tribes and, and cast it away. And here's what I mean. If you were to take, and, and there's, there's different um, stats and sizes, but if you just took an area of about 20 foot by 20 foot, and for every fighting soldier of the 603,000 individuals, you gave them roughly a 20 foot by 20 foot square for them to live, for them to rest, for them to build their fire, to maybe have some of their animals, just them alone, not even considering the wives, the women, the children, all the other beasts, all of the other things that were coming with this entire entourage of the children of Israel. If you just took the fighting soldiers and gave each of those 603,550 individuals a 20 foot by 20 foot section, that's less than this pulpit up here or platform up here. 
and said, that's your area to live when we're in camp or when we're moving around. The size that would be needed to house all of those individuals is 12 square miles. And you might look and go, okay, 12 square miles. If you were to leave church and drive along 422 West and drive all the way to Hershey, center of Hershey, it's 12 miles. And then if you go from Hershey and drive all the way up 743 up to Gap, that's 12 miles. And if you drove from Gap all the way to Fredericksburg, it's 12 miles. And then if you drove from Fredericksburg down to Lebanon back to church, it's only about nine miles, but you get the idea of the size. 12 square miles needed just to house and encamp the fighting soldiers, giving them a 20-foot square area. Now, I know in a military camp, that's a little bit more than is needed. But you also have to take into account in this camp are all the men, women, the women, the children, the teens, the beasts, the supplies, all the things you've plundered out of Egypt. They're all, it's all with you. Can, you. can you understand how hard it would be then for Moses to have to move around and communicate how people could start grumbling because maybe Moses is down in Hershey, but they're all the way up in Fredericksburg. And it's not, it's not the ability to just jump in a car and drive 25 minutes and meet up with them. Even if you put the tabernacle at the center of that, that area there, it's a day's walk if you're at the far outskirts of the camp. Can you, can you picture now why when the, when the uh, Israelites are moving toward Edom, they're like, no, we don't want you to come through. The wreckage, the carnage, just the people walking through. What would it do to the land? How would it ha- They're like, no, we don't, we don't, you're going to go around us. You're not coming through all of our area. Why my Moab would be concerned and Balak would be concerned about this group coming because they are, it is a large group. And as they're moving, God is providing and God is working. So can there really be that many people? Absolutely. Remember the promises that the patriarchs were given by God. You have them being told that they're going to be numbered like the stars of the heaven that it's going to be like the sands of the sea. You're, not the, you're going to see them, and you're not even going to be able to count them. And God is a miraculous God. God provided all that was necessary. He provided all they needed. So yes, we know on a daily basis, he provided them manna. We know that he's going to provide them quail. We know when they run out of water, he provides them water out of a rock. Yeah, I can't do that, and you can't either. But God can. And so God provides all those dynamics for them because God is a miraculous God who's preparing his people and providing for them to be able to go into the promised land. He's not just taking them out there to leave them to to death, although they accuse him of that. God is miraculously providing for his people. Now, when you read through the chapter, you're going to get down right around chapter uh, or verse 47. But the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, was not numbered among them. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only you shall not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. So the Levites are not going to be counted in this military census. Why not? Because they're not going to be included as part of the regular army. They have a completely different uh, job. They have a different function in the tribe. They are going to be, as you read through those things, 
in verses 51, 52, what are they to be doing? They're going to be carrying the tabernacle. They're going to be ministering in the tabernacle and to the tabernacle and in around it. They're going to be ministering to the people. They're going to be living around the tabernacle. They're going to be required to take the tabernacle up when it's time to move and to set it back up again when it's time to settle down. Their job is going to be when the stranger uh, comes against it, the end of verse uh, 51. And the stranger that comes against it nigh shall be put to death. Their job is to protect the tabernacle. They have, a, they have a unique function. They're not part of the military. They are part of the, the group that is going to protect and guard and move and serve the people through the tabernacle. So they're not, they're not counted in it. And then you end, you end the chapter here with the people, the children of Israel, obeying God, verse 54. They're going to do all that was commanded of them. So this camp, in order to organize it, in order for it to work, it had to be a military-style camp. It had to have this, this structure, this organization, this orderliness for it to function. Now, you can go on the internet, and you can Google the, the, the camp, and you're going to come up with all of these different styles of what it would look like. And everybody has their opinion as to why it's going to look like this or why it's going to be this. I would encourage you as you go through and you read, as much as we don't want to just gloss over the book of Numbers, don't overread into the book of Numbers. Don't start looking and saying, well, these numbers have to mean something specific. And the names, you know, what are the names of these individuals? And based on the numbers, or some, some individuals will look and say, well, based on the numbers, and when, when Balaam was standing over and you see it, it had to be in the shape of a cross based on the numbers. We don't know exactly. We don't know how it's laid out, but we do know that as you look through Numbers chapter 2, as God says, okay, we're going to give a census, and here's how you're going to camp, and here's how you're going to move, we do have a general layout of what is going to happen in the camp. What you find is as you get to chapter 2 and verse number 1, chapter 2, verse number 1, uh, Moses is going to be spoken to again by the Lord, and then every man and children shall pitch their tent by their own standard. So now he's not just looking and saying just the military men. He's saying their families, everybody. They're going to be pitching their tents. They're going to be living together. They're going to do it by their standard. So they're going to stay with their tribe. They're going to stay with their family in their tribe. So they're going to, they're going to have to sit. You know, you're going to have to come into the auditorium. And you're going to have to sit with your family. And you're going to have to do it by your clan section. And, and that idea... That's how they're going to camp, together as a unit. But then he's going to start laying out verse 3 and following. Well, at the end of verse uh, 2, it's really important. It says that they're to be far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. There's a distance that they're supposed to maintain from the tabernacle, whether it's a half mile up to a mile, some, some will debate on it. We know at one point when the, the Ark of the Covenant is moving, the people are told to stay at least a half a mile away, 2,000 cubits away from the, uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant. And so maybe it's, maybe it's something like that where there's at least a half a mile up to a mile away from the tabernacle is where the people are going to start pitching their camp. And there's going to be four different divisions or four camps of the Israelites. You're going to have the, the camp of Judah, you're going to have the camp of Reuben, you're going to have the camp of Ephraim, and then you're going to have the camp of Dan. And underneath those camps are going to be different, three different tribes in each section. And so as you read through the, the first part of chapter 2, starting in verse number 3, on the east side, 
you're going to have the camp of Judah. There's going to be 186,400 people in this. And you can see that it's going to be the tribe of Zebulon, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Judah, all in that encampment. And then as it goes around, it starts off with Judah and the, the text takes us around the camp. So it goes from Judah to Issachar to Zebulon. Then the text is going to pick up on the south side, verse 10, shall be a standard of the camp of Reuben. So now Reuben, the camp led by Reuben and the tribe of Reuben, it's going to go Reuben, then it's going to go Simeon, then Gad. And then when you finish off with verse 16, you're going to think it's going to go to the next tribe going around, but there's a break in there. Look at verse 17, very important. It says, Then the tabernacle of the congregation shall step forward with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp, and they shall encamp, so shall they step forward every man in his place by their standards. So what happens is, in the middle of the camp, around the tabernacle, you're going to have the different Levites all stationed around the tabernacle. And they're at the center. And you're going to have the different, the different tribes, or not tribes of Levi, but the different family clan units of, the, of Levi in that area. Then it picks up again in verse 18 with the west side. On the west side, you're going to have the camp of Ephraim. You're going to have Ephraim, then Manasseh, then Benjamin. And then the text keeps going on when you get to uh, verse 25, the standard and the, of the camp of Dan. And Dan is going to give you all these numbers. And here's Dan, then Asher, then Naphtali. And you finish off the, the book per, or the chapter pretty much looking and saying, here they are. And then verse 33, again, but the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses because they're not part of that military encampment. They're going to have their own section. They have a special entity. And you end the chapter again, the same way chapter one ended with the Levites. And then what does it end with? The people, the children of Israel did all that according to that the Lord had commanded through the mouth of Moses. So they were obedient again. Now you may be looking and saying, what does all this have to do with anything? It's giving us a picture of what is taking place in that camp, in that encampment. Don't overread into it. We know that Judah is the leader of the people. So that's often why he's first and becomes the leader of the tribe, the tribes. We know that Reuben's the oldest. So he's probably one of the reasons he's in the encampment as a leader. We know that Ephraim receives that extra blessing from Jacob because he's one of the, from the favorite son of Joseph. Why Dan is there? Maybe it's because he's the, the second largest grouping, possibly. We don't know exactly why, but we know that these are the divisions, these are the encampments, and how they're supposed to move. In fact, even in chapter 10, when they move, they move in that similar order. The tribe of uh, Judah is going to go first, then the tribe of Reuben, then the Levites in the tabernacle are going to be in the center, then they're going to be followed up by Ephraim, and then it's going to be followed up by Dan. And so there's this movement where everything, whether they're encamped or whether they're moving at the center of it all, is the tabernacle, the Levites, those who are speaking on behalf of God, those who are ministering to the people, the importance of God being at the center. And we, we look at all of this and we say, okay, what is, what is this layout? Why does he take time to give us these marching orders? Because you would look and I look and go, okay, well, we're not marching off to Zion and, you know, going to go to the promised land. But it does allow for optimum efficiency, for effective deployment, 
from a military point. They knew what they had to do. They knew how to do it. They knew when this trumpet sounded and this signal was given. They knew how to move. They knew what to, what to do. It provided protection for the, I, I put the word sanctity items. There should be sacred is a better word. But it's the idea of the, the sacred items. It protected the tabernacle at the center. It protected all that was going on. It, uh, it provided, um, it prevents, excuse me, the potential road rage, as I'm calling it. Think about it. Think about how frustrating it is just for 300 cars to, to leave the parking lot here, go out two driveways at church, and then always trying to get out. And you could even have potential road rage, even with fellow believers, because you're like, are we going to get out of this parking lot at any time? And you get that backup. What about two to two and a half million people picking up and saying, all right, let's go. Where are we going? If there's no order, if there's no d- deliberateness, it's going to potentially create frustration and road rage, even with your fellow family members that are taking place. And it would allow for a quick response. If they were being attacked, they would know where to go or if they had to pick up and leave quickly. They had that ability. Very strategic, very wise on behalf of God to help set all of that up. In fact, it's interesting to me that when you look at the Egyptians, and especially Pharaoh's Ramesses II, he actually has a number of hieroglyphs from one of his battles that, um, in, in time where they showed how they encamped in the Egyptian army. They would put in a tent at the center of the army would be the tabernacle, or not the tabernacle, excuse me, would be Pharaoh's tent. And then there would be space and there would be people around it and there would be the armies all the way around Pharaoh's tent. Pharaoh was at the center. The Egyptians, that's how, they, that's how they did battle. They're protected. It's interesting that you now look at the tabernacle and you look at the military encampment. They were familiar with the setup. They were familiar with what had to happen in their, their, their encampment. And so you look at it and you say, really, okay, Pastor, really, what is this all about? Okay, there's a bunch of numbers. There's a bunch of tribes. And all of this is happening, but... What does it have to do with me? If you were going to set up a military strategy for these people, would you do it like me? I would look and say, okay, I want to find out from all these millions of uh, 600,000 fighters, I want to find out who are the best archers, and I want to put them in a group. And I want to find out who are the best uh, maybe horseback riders and put them in a group and the best swordsmen and put them in a group. And I, and I want to do all of that. And as I, and I lay it out, God doesn't do it that way. God is going to lay them out by their family. And when we look at what God is going to do, it teaches us a little bit about God. What do I learn? I learned that God is a God of order. God had a plan. He had a purpose. He exacted it. In fact, you get to the book of Corinth and remember what Paul says? He's like, all of this chaos that's happening in our family, in our church here, it's not good. He says, you need to have some orderliness because God expects things to be done decently and orderly. So God, for his family of the Jews there, he says, I want it done and I want it done orderly because God is a God. Even in creation, he does it with order. And so I learned that God is a God of order. I learned that God provided for Uh, not only the order, but he provided the efficiency, the power, the ability for Israel to go. The victories that are going to be won are going to be won through him and through them following him. They're to to function as a unit and a group following God. And God is sufficient. God provided all they needed. He provided their food, their water, their encampment, their strength, their shoes not to wear out. He provided all of that for them. 
because God was sufficient, and he is sufficient. As I look through the text, and I look and say, what's it about? I think God desires his people to fight together as a family. Not fight with my family, but fight together as a family. The whole, all of chapter one, he doesn't say, let's find the best archers and put them there. He says, you are going to fight alongside of your family's standard, your family's banner, your tribe's banner. You are going to fight as a unit. And we, we see that. Is there benefits to fighting with family? Absolutely. Not fighting, again, not fighting. When I say fighting with family, I'm not talking about brother and sister getting at each other. But looking and saying, fighting alongside of family. Fighting for the same cause, the same purpose. You already know the individual socially, so you don't have to learn their idiosyncrasies. You don't have to learn their communication and their speech patterns. You're able to focus on your military skills to prepare for battle. They're able to, as a family structure, you, you see it throughout military all around. There's this concept of a core, a concept of a group, a unit, a, a band of brothers is often f- referred to. And the tight, close-knit aspects of our military men and women as they, they function together as a unit and they would sacrifice themselves for each other. They won't leave each other behind. They'll do the battle in order to protect their comrades, their, their units, their, their men and women that they're fighting alongside of. How much more if the one I'm fighting alongside of is Uncle Fred? And I like Uncle Fred. And all of a sudden, somebody's attacking him or somebody's attacking Grandpa because amazingly, Grandpa can still wield a sword and he's able to fight. I'm going to be that much more intense in the battle to protect my loved ones, to protect my family legacy, to protect my family who's behind me and the kids are back there and the, the house is back or the tent's back there and the sheep are back there and I've got to protect what is mine. I'm going to fight much more uh, dearly and intensely. And so God says, we fight together as a family. And I want us to think about that in relationship to our family, not directly to my wife and my kids, but to our faith family, to our church. We are called, we are, when we get saved, we become part of the family of God. And when we have submitted to become a member of Faith Baptist Church, I have become part of the Faith Baptist family. I am part of this unit. I am part of this family here. And as I fight together with you, not against you, how do I do? Our church, we're not a social club. We're not just a service provider where we're just like, hey, we're here because we just had this and this. I know we have services and we have worship services, but we're talking about, we're, we're not just here to just give something. We are here to work together as a family to minister together as a family unit, to protect, to care for, to love, to nurture, to, to build up, to send out our loved ones. We are a local family of believers that represents the larger family of believers. And how do we represent our king? Do we fight with each other? Do we shoot our own wounded you know, it's, it's been jokingly said that the believers are the only ones who kill off their wounded army men, members. We are a family. We are to nurture each other. We are to build each other. We're to fight alongside of each other. You know, I, I remember um, the, the story 
the Bug, story of Bugs Life. It's a movie. And there's this point where this, this one individual flick who the, the community of ants looks at him and says, you're, you're not like us or you're acting a little bit differently. And they, they sort of banish him, but then he comes back and he's going to protect and tries to protect against the, the evil grasshoppers. But the picture that's shown is, is really beautiful. The individuals, when the ants finally realize that there are way more of them than the grasshoppers and they unite and they fight together for the same cause, they realize that there is strength in numbers. They realize that there is strength in the encouragement of each other, united together for a common cause, a common goal. When we look at our lives, when we look at here at church, we are to fight not only as a family, but we are to fight for the the common goals, the common causes of God. God is the one at the center. God is the one who is giving us the, the marching orders. How do I do when my friend here at church, my family member, my brother, my sister needs forgiveness? How do I do when they fall? Do I beat them down? Do I give the condescending look and say, well, I would never do that. And, you know, keep away. Do I look at a new believer and as an older believer, more mature believer, do I, I look and say, yeah, I don't want to really be associated with some of the new things that they, they've been doing or where they're coming from. So I'm going to keep a distance rather than bringing myself in and, and helping to mentor them. Do I, do I look, do I say, you know, do I, do I help hurting believers? Do I help fallen believers? Do I help disciple and train new believers? Do I, do I share God's grace with struggling believers? We are a family. And if we just fight against each other, we're just going to create a civil war. And when we create a civil war, we become easy prey. We become discouraged. We can't afford that in our nation. We can't afford that in the future. As we go forward and we look at the way things are playing out in our country, I truly believe it's only a matter of time till persecution is going to come upon us. That, that we are going to be labeled as people who are promoting hate crimes because of what we stand for. And if we can't lean on our family members, if we can't fight together for the same causes according to God's causes, where are we going to be able to lean? I know we can lean on God. But God has designed this family to fight together. We need to come together. We need to come together for the same causes, the same purpose, to glorify our Savior, to evangelize the lost, to worship Him, to instruct others, to disciple them. We have that responsibility, and we need to work together as a family to have those thoughts and that intentionality. Because when it comes down to it, the causes we're to fight for are not mine. If it's all about me, and it's about what I want, and how I expect worship to happen, and how I expect you to act, and how I expect you to do this and that, and how I expect you to treat me, and it's all about me, we've got the wrong center. That's all of chapter 2. This chapter 2 is all about the center. God has spatially shown us that the proper center for God, the proper place for God is at the center. The most high is to be at the center in every dynamic of our life, in every aspect of our church. It is to be about what does God require? What does God want? What does God expect? What are his marching orders? And I take every dynamic of my life and I put it around the hub of God. God spatially demonstrates that God's proper place, his only place, is at the center. 
God is to be at the center. Why? Because he is the authority. He is the authority to which all other authorities answer. So when God tells us that we are to do X, Y, and Z, then we are to do X, Y, and Z. And it may come to a point in our lives where we have to make a decision. Is God at the center? Am I at the center? Is a government official at the center? Who's at the center of my hub? And I have to follow through because all of chapter two at the center was God. You know, there's, there's this phrase. There's this, this idea called imperium. You may never have heard the phrase or the, the, the word, but we get the idea of the imperial, the king, the emperor. Nebuchadnezzar had imperium. He had the ability to what he said happened. In fact, it went to his head, remember? He gets to the point in the book of Daniel where he feels like he is better than all gods, that he is better than God himself. Julius Caesar had imperium. Alexander the Great had imperium. They, were, they had the imperial ability to what they said, it happened. And because of that, everybody fought for their cause. Everybody did what they said, whether it was out of fear or out of reverence or out of respect, they did that. Can I, can I submit to you that when we look at Numbers 1 and 2, it flows out that we as a family are to fight for the causes of God who's to be at the center of our life. Why? Because God has imperium. God is the authority to which all other authorities answer. For us to replace him with anyone or anything is to make ourselves an enemy of God. God is to be at the center. He is the one who has total authority. He is the one whom the world revolves around. He is the one that empires come and empires go because of God's word and God's authority. As we go forward this week, as we look to minister to our family, our faith family, how are we doing building each other up? Are we fighting against or fighting and striving with? Are we striving with each other for the same goals? The goals that God has established. And why do we follow those goals? Because God is at the center. God is the one who has imperium. Let's do what God wants us to do this week because he is our king. He has imperium. Lord, we thank you that we can study your word. And though it's a section where sometimes we look and we gloss over, Lord, forgive me for doing that because all parts of your word are profitable for me. Lord, I pray that you would help me to strive with our family. Help me to follow your causes and help each other to strengthen each other around those causes. Lord, help us to keep you at our center because you have imperium. You are our king. You are the authority of authorities. In your name we pray. Amen.